Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the weekly Sideshow, where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Sam Marchetti. And I'm Funny Shory Rajendran. And today, we're going to get up to date on everything from anti-aging to the perfect piece of chocolate in another discussion on the sidelines. All right, Tanish, I am dying to hear more about this chocolate. Okay, we're starting off with the chocolate first then. So I don't think we hear a lot about signs of food or food researchers. Yeah, that's fair to say. So what do you think of chocolates? What do I think of? I think I have a box of it on my desk. Like there's chocolate right in front of me right now. Oh, my God. Well, sadly, I'm allergic to chocolate. Oh, that is sad. I know. It's very sad. I still like chocolate and I'll take like bites of it, like white chocolate and milk chocolate is fine. It's just very mild allergy, but I still love chocolate. So what is your perfect piece of chocolate? Like when you think of chocolate, what's like, oh, the best kind? The best kind of chocolate? I really like um, the, I think it's lint, the lint balls, you know, with like the soft, the, the, like the creamy inside, right? I love those. They're so good. Oh yeah. I do like the nougat like Snickers kind of bars. But what if I tell you, you can make that better. You can make your favorite chocolate even better than what it tastes like right now. I mean, I wouldn't believe you, but go on. Okay, so food that we eat in our daily lives, like we have food that we like and food that we don't like, and oftentimes it's associated with taste. But it can also be associated with things like mouthfeel and also like the sound it makes when you bite. Like I know people have like an adverse reaction to like mushrooms, for example. They hate the mouthfeel of mushroom. It's not the taste, but it's how you bite into it. So there's this group of scientists that came in the University of Amsterdam that came up with the perfect design for chocolate. So they wanted the chocolate properties to be optimized to the best mouthfeel and the best crunch. And they call this meta material. So it's material that doesn't exist in nature, but it is made. And usually when you think of like materials, you think of like wood hybrids or something like that. But no, this material is entirely made of chocolate. Wait, okay. So it's like, oh, they're saying like the, the mouthfeel of the thing. There's nothing in nature that has this, this mouthfeel. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. How do you determine what the optimal mouthfeel is, though? Because, like, for example, I know some people who, like, they, they love strawberries. They'll eat strawberries until the end of time. I won't. I love how they taste, but I hate the feel of it. Like, I hate the seeds and the, you know, the weird feeling of the, the thing. Um, so I won't eat just, like, a, a normal strawberry unless I'm, like, at gunpoint. But oh <laughs> so how do you determine the optimal? Because everybody likes different things. So based on what the scientists have published and what they're researching, the most optimal mouthfeel is any texture that has the most cracks and has a consistent texture all throughout. So to get this optimal chocolate meta material, what they did was that 
they worked with bakers and you know do you know how to temper chocolate so basically you melt the chocolate down and then you cool it really fast so that it has a nice sheen it is one of the hardest things to do in the baking world just to give you context so what they did was that they would heat the chocolate pull put in like whole pieces of chocolate to get the right temperature and they would then put it in a 3d printer Oh, interesting. So the reason why they're putting it through the 3D printer is because they want the same consistency and the property of the chocolate to be the same all throughout. So that's how they get that consistency. So the next step now is to shape the chocolate. So they tried like different geometrical shapes. They tried an S shape, but they found one shape that was they used a mathematical model to figure out this one shape that gave the most number of crunches no matter where you bit it okay is it like a is it like a dodecahedron or something you know like something with like a million different sizes like a dodecahedron is only 12 but still no it's actually a simple spiral like because no matter where you bite it there's always going to be a crack oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now that we have the melt filled done, the next thing they had to tackle was the crunch. Because oftentimes when you bite into food, the audio that you get from biting into it also gives into the enjoyment. That's why, like, for example, when I'm eating a bag of Doritos, like, that's my favorite part, like the crunchy sound. Because for some reason, anything that crunches, you just assume tastes amazing. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. It's like when you order, um, you know, when you get like when you get like pizza and then the crust comes out soft and it's just not as enjoyable as when you go to like a nice Italian restaurant, and you get that nice crispy crust, you know, a crispy edge. Oh, with like just a slight amount of burnt cheese around. Yeah. Oh, so they found that with this shape of chocolate that no matter where you bit, yes, you have the same number of crunches, but they all produced sounds every time you bit into them. So now you have the audio to go with your delicious chocolate. And at the end of their design, they say that, okay, we have designed an enjoyable eating experience. So it might not necessarily be the best for everyone, but this is as optimal as of a mouthfeel and crunch you're going to get based on this design so to you know to, to please the masses so basically anybody could eat this and say oh this is pretty good it might not be anyone's like absolute favorite but everybody will agree it's pretty good exactly and this is like one of those designs of edible meta material they don't just call it chocolate they call it chocolate meta material i don't like that <laughs> really i don't like that at all i don't want to call i don't want to call anything meta ever again Oh my god, just because it's so over you. Yeah, it's because of uh, Mark, my guy Mark. He's ruined the word meta for everyone. Um, Because now we all just associate meta with Mark Zuckerberg playing with VR. I don't want to think about that. That ruins my day. (laughs) So that's the thing. Maybe this chocolate's amazing, but as soon as you start calling it chocolate meta material, I'm just going to start picturing Mark Zuckerberg and it's going to ruin the enjoyment of the chocolate. No. So false. They have, they have ruined chocolate. They have not found the ideal chocolate. I refuse to believe this now. Um, so on another note, and this is actually kind of related. So in order to make chocolate, what do we need? 
we use cacao beads. Right. So we use plants. Yeah. That's that was the segue I was going for. We use plants. <laughs> <laughs> so um are you aware of the process of photosynthesis? Yes. I think I learned it when I was in elementary. There is one very important molecule involved in photosynthesis, and it's called rubisco. And rubisco is the thing that actually takes uh, the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and it turns it into a, a larger carbon molecule that the plants can use to make sugar, which is a six carbon molecule. So it kind of takes from CO2, these one carbon uh, molecules, and it combines a bunch of them together to make six carbon molecules in the end um, that it stores to use for energy later. Rubisco is kind of notoriously not anyone's favorite thing in the world. Um, so it is an enzyme that kind of catalyzes this process of taking the CO2 from the atmosphere and putting it into a sugar. But can you take one guess why people don't like it? Does it taste bad? Is it bitter? No. So it's actually not the taste. It's the efficiency. Um, so Rubisco itself is not very efficient. It can only catalyze um, a few reactions per second. So it means it can only take a few carbon dioxide molecules out of the air every second to help the plant, you know, grow. Um, and because of that, and, you know, for reference, uh, other enzymes can do thousands of reactions per second. Um, so this enzyme is comparatively very slow um, and it doesn't just stop the plant from growing at a faster rate, but it also stops the plant from taking in carbon dioxide at a faster rate. And right now we need plants to be taking in carbon dioxide because we have too much of it out there. Um, yeah, we're at a point in in history where we're raising CO2 levels faster than ever before in Earth's history. This is just the fastest that CO2 levels have ever gone up. So it's been this huge um, kind of, you know, point of interest for researchers over the last couple of decades. How can we make Rubisco more efficient? How can we make it take in uh, CO2 faster? Um, just to clarify, Rubisco is the enzyme. That's in yes, Rubisco is an enzyme. Um, so it's, it's a little thing in the plant, in the leaf, that's going to take the CO2 and turn it into a longer sugar uh, chain. Okay. So what researchers have done fairly recently, um, and I should give the caveat before this, they have not actually tested the enzymes yet, but they looked at the DNA of basically a bunch of rubiscos in different plants um, that exist today. They looked at the genes that, you know, produce those rubiscos. Um, and they kind of use that to track backwards and say, OK, this is what the genes of Rubisco must have looked like 20 to 30 million years ago. Um, and they have a bunch of different uh, candidates. They have about uh, 98 different candidates of what Rubisco could have looked like. Um, and their goal, based on these kind of predictions, is to say, OK, are these Rubiscos going to be better at uh, trapping CO2? And the reason for that is 20 to 30 million years ago there was more CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, so they're kind of trying to resurrect that ancient structure of Rubisco and see if it just works better because there was more CO2 back then. Oh, there was more CO2 back then? And th throughout history, there have been a lot of points in time when we've had CO2 levels at this, um, at this level that we're at now or even higher. Um, the issue with climate change is just the speed at, at which it's increasing, right? The, nothing has the time to adapt. So this is kind of part of the study. We're trying to help plants adapt, um, you know, artificially faster than they normally could by finding that ancient Rubisco. And ideally, uh, this team's end goal is to give it to them um, and just give it to the, the modern plants that exist and help them 
take in CO2 more efficiently. Oh, that's so cool. So it's like going back an evolutionary track and like figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. And right now they've only kind of identified what these um, they've kind of identified what these ancient rubiscos could look like and, you know, how efficient they could be. Um, but their next step is to actually, you know, put it into basically we have um, in terms of, you know, studying this kind of thing now, uh, biotechnology, we have these uh, we have these methodologies where we can just put in this gene that we now have. We have the gene sequence. Um, and it's kind of like a 3D printer and it'll just, you know, spit out the protein. Um, so that's their next step. Actually make the protein that these ancient genes code for um, and then measure how it affects the production of, you know, mass in the plant, how it helps the plant to grow. Oh, that is so cool. Because like if this actually happens, we would have like, well, a strain of plants with this enzymes that can like help us with climate change. Anything that helps with climate change is like, essential yeah me. and not only could it help with climate change but it could also make the plants more um, resilient to climate change so it could you know it could help us kind of you know bring some of our existing plants um you know like the normal crops that we have now you know corn tomatoes whatever um and bring those into a future that has more co2 oh that is so cool now talking about evolution and like going in to time to get enzymes let's talk about ravens and crows i love crows i absolutely love crows i don't know if you know about this there's an instagram page um and i will say listener discretion is advised um if you do not like curse words do not go look at this instagram page but they're called <laughs> effin birds uh spelled e-f-f-i-n birds um and it's all <laughs> some very funny pictures they, they do a lot of crows they do a lot of crows um, and they just have the crows basically saying funny things and a lot of their posts do involve cursing. So if you're not into that, don't go look at it. But if you're OK with that, it's pretty entertaining. Um, so that's the reason I love crows. Give me another reason to love crows. <laughs> More reasons to love crows. Have you ever watched that movie Rising of the Planet Ape? I think that's what it's called. Rise of the Planet of the Apes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that one. Where all of a sudden they have all this intelligence and they take over mankind. Yeah, yeah. So, crows and like ravens in general, where do you think they can be found? Like, which country, which region? I'm gonna say, uh, I feel like everywhere. I mean, everywhere except for maybe like tropical climates, right? So, I think uh, north and south of the. No, they're everywhere. Oh, they're just everywhere. They are everywhere. They okay. have globalized. They've globalized. Okay. Pretty much, because like growing up in Malaysia and like in the tropics, there were crows. I came to Newfoundland, there are crows here. And like looking at this map, it's just red everywhere. Okay, so crows are everywhere. Yes, crows are everywhere. But like there's a reason why they have this planetary expansion just dominated. Okay. Precisely three reasons why. And the title of this article goes really well with it called brains and bronze help crows overtake the world. So those three traits include, number one, they have a bigger brain compared to body size compared to most birds out there. So whenever they land into a new environment, they can figure out how to adapt really quickly, where to survive, where they can get sources of food. So they have bigger brains, they, the second one is that they have longer wind expansions, so they can fly longer distance. 
Oh, okay. So they have a bit larger flying capacity that allows them to go to all these places. And the last one is that they have a bigger body than like most small species birds in general. So they can just like overpower a lot of these species and that increases their ch- chances of survival because they can establish this new environments faster. So yeah, big brains, longer winds, and just bigger body in general. Sounds like a classic example of, um, you know, an invasive species. Because when we talk about invasive species, it's basically how quickly can they, you know, uh, colonize and how well can they outcompete the things that are already there. And it sounds like, you know, these uh, these got it covered, right? The the crows got it covered. They have the, the ability to move. They have the ability to outcompete what's in the destination they land at. Um, and they have the ability to kind of survive there. Yeah. So, like, crows and ravens are in the family called Corvidae. And that also includes like magpies and jays, but crows and like ravens typically have a higher rate of this compared to like other bird species in this family in general because of their, because they have a higher rate of trade evolution. So you see that when you're looking at crows from cold arctics versus like tropical rainforests. Like they can survive extremely cold temperatures and extremely warm. And that's because they have strategized and optimized selection. So when you think of like selection process, it's very slow and it like goes on for a very long time. And sometimes you won't get advantages. But basically in these organisms, every time they go to a new environment, they there is a selection that allows for them to favor tweaking um, phenotypes that are advantage. So basically, if they move to a colder environment, their phenotypes change into acclimating to the cold environment. And if they go to somewhere where there is um, a very warm environment, then that happens. So yeah, these birds are going to take over this world. I'm calling it right now. Yeah, I mean, as Darwin on a on a larger scale, right? This is exactly what Darwin described. For anyone who doesn't know, he um, what he did was he went and looked at the finches in the Galapagos Islands, and what he observed was that on the different Galapagos Islands, um, all these finches had come from the same kind of ancestor finch, um, and when they moved to the different islands, they all developed different beaks, um, that helped them to basically eat the food that was available on each island. So. For the islands that had like really large, you know, hard nuts that were difficult to crack, the finches developed these really big, strong beaks. Um, For islands where there were insects deep in trees, the finches developed these really long beaks that helped them reach into the trees and get the insects. Yeah, but it's exactly like that, just on a larger scale. You go to a warmer place and the ravens develop, I guess, you know, characteristics that help them survive in a warmer environment and vice versa with with the colder environment. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't have a like for them as much as you do, <laughs> but yeah, you can basically wherever you go in the world, there's going to be a crow waiting for you. Nice to know. Nice to know there's always going to be a, a crow waiting for me. I kind of like that. Um, okay, so we're going to switch gears here. Another thing I was looking at this week, anti-aging. Anti-aging, and I feel like this is what's going to have drawn a lot of our listeners in. Maybe I'll put a little note in our description that we're talking about the anti-aging part here. Um, This is the part that you kind of care about. So before we get into anti-aging, let's first talk about cells in general. Um, So, Tanish, do you know what a stem cell is? 
Yes. So it's basically this blank cell that can turn into and differentiate into different types of cells. So like your skin or your organs, blood, whatever. Yeah, exactly. So we have like muscle cells, you know, we have the cells that um, we have our neurons, right? We have the cells that line the inside of our uh, digestive system, all these different kinds of cells. Um, and stem cells are cells that haven't decided what kind of cell they're going to be yet. So in recent years, what scientists have been able to do, this is actually back in 2007, a researcher named Shinya Yamanaka, uh, he was the first scientist to turn normal cells back into stem cells. Uh, and how he did this was he kind of, he, he found these things called uh, Yamanaka factors, obviously named after himself, because that's, <laughs> that's what scientists do. Um, and basically, what he did was uh, kind of expose cells to these Yamanaka factors. Um, and there are these four key molecules that help cells determine how old they are, basically. Kind of like a, a biological clock. The cells know how old they are based on how, you know, the presence of these factors. Um, so what he did was he would uh, reprogram uh, cells that had already differentiated into stem cells by exposing them to these Yamanaka factors for 50 days. Um, so he exposed them to this, and at the end of it, they would turn back into stem cells. That that sounds weird because like how? <laughs> because when you think of stem cells, I always think about getting stem cells from your bone marrow or like placenta when you're bone, but never revert. Like what is the cells he's using? Any cells. So he's using any cells. Um, and in theory, those stem cells could become any cell type, but scientists haven't actually like been able to recreate the conditions to re-differentiate them into any kind of cell. So we can turn a cell back into a stem cell, but we can't say, okay, now you, new stem cell, go turn into like a skin cell. Like we haven't been able to, to do that yet. So now, more recently, what scientists have tried is instead of uh, exposing cells for 50 days, like Yamanaka did, um, let's, you know, expose skin cells for just 13 days and see what happens. Um, and what do you think they found? Is it like partially differentiated? Like, for example, it went from like a specialized white blood cell to like a precursor of one. Sort of. You're on the right track. Basically, it, it just turns back time, right? It's weird. These Yamanaka factors are kind of like a time machine. Um, you know, as you're exposed to them as a cell, you kind of go backwards in the time of your life, right? So after 50 days, you go all the way back to being a stem cell. But after just 13 days, um, what these scientists notice that um, these skin cells, you know, functions returned that are normally only there in younger skin cells. Um, so it, it, they literally reduced the age of these skin cells. Oh, my God. Now, I can't think of that in like a bigger scale, because if this was applied to every single cell in your entire body, you grow younger. Yeah, we could have literal anti-aging. Having said that, they were doing this um, in, you know, uh, they were doing this in a pretty sophisticated lab with some pretty, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, in vitro frameworks. Uh, there's definitely not, uh, they have not reached into the realm of doing this on actual people yet. Um, yeah, they've only done this basically in Petri dishes, but it does have some, it does have some promise for, for the future. No, that sounds really cool. And that could be used for like a lot of different things. Like, oh, maybe this could be done with organs as well. Because like, I don't know, this is like very just throwing an idea out there. Because like if you have an organ that's like aging a lot and has been overworked, especially like the liver, if you can like 
fix that up using this technology like that could yeah maybe it could tie back to what we talked about on monday you know maybe it'll reduce the risk of uh it'll reduce the risk of getting liver cancer in the first place we won't need a histotripsy to to break it down Um, i like our continuity there yeah (laughs) all right tanish what's the last thing you got for us today Okay, so the last thing I have for you today is about how to increase vaccine efficiency. So I know we talked a lot about like COVID in a lot of our episodes, but this is not entirely anything to do with COVID because this research was started way before COVID even happened. So this goes to show that vaccine development and vaccine research has been going on way before we see even like certain strains and viruses like appear in nature. So a group of scientists, what they did was that they are not vaccine developers, but they're biomedical researchers. So they were looking into finding a good gold nanoparticle that would increase vaccine efficiency by acting as an adjunct. So an adjunct is basically whatever goes in with the actual vaccine itself to cause the vaccine efficiency in your body. So more antibodies and immune response when you get injected with the vaccine to occur. So that means you'll have a stronger protection against a virus long term. Sorry, did you say gold? Yes, I said gold. A lot of these nanoparticles are gold. So they're going to inject us with gold? Well, if you put it that way. Uh, yeah, I'm going to put it that way. That's what it is. They're injecting us with gold. We're all going to turn into the, the James Bond villain, Goldfinger. Oh, my Start God. playing Goldfinger music right here when I edit this. It's the kiss of death from Mr. Goldfinger. Um. <laughs> well, I have good news for you because usually every component of a vaccine, ag- including adjuncts, will disappear from your body eventually. Oh. So you're good. You're not going to turn into. No, I was into it. I was like on board with it. I don't want it to. Dis- I want to be part gold. Oh, my God. It'll be Midas. You can never swim. If you become part gold, oh, you can never swim. Oh, that's true. That is true. Okay, anyway, so these gold nanoparticles, an important thing that you learn in chemistry, well, when you do chemistry, is chirality. Okay, and what's chirality? So chirality is basically a type of asymmetry, and the best way to describe is to give you an example. So your hands are basically chiralities of each other. For example, if you take your hands and put them against a mirror, your right hand will be reflected. You will on the mirror. You'll see your left hand instead. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like the opposite of the hand that you're putting against the mirror, and this applies to almost everything in the world, especially in a molecular level, where the chirality of a molecule can change the entire function of a drug or treatment. And by chirality, we usually just refer to molecules as either left-handed or right-handed chirality, because that's the easiest way to like understand it. Just to give you an example of why this is important, for example, a right-handed um, dr- 
version of protein A can be beneficial to us. It, for example, it can help with colds or like different sore throats. But if you have the left-handed version instead of the right-handed version, the left-handed version can be detrimental to your health instead. Okay. So that's why a lot of research, clinical trials go into drug development in general. So in terms of why we're talking about chirality right now is that they wanted to figure out what chirality of the gold nanoparticle will give you the best result as an adjunct. So in nature, these gold nanoparticles are achiral and it's very symmetrical. It's achiral because it's symmetrical, no matter where you look at it. Okay. So you know what they did? Then they decided, you know what? We're going to induce chirality to this molecule, which is insane to think about. But basically, they just bombarded with different amino acids. And I guess they kind of just bent it a little bit. Yeah, so they bent it in different directions. You get the left-hand chirality and the right-hand chirality. And then after they have that, they put it into like vaccines and then they would test it in Petri dishes. All research, most research, always starts with a Petri dish before it (laughs) goes to any living things. Yeah. Yeah, so what they found is that in a Petri dish of immune cells, when they put in the left-handed chiral, gold nanoparticle, it causes the cells to produce substances that can increase antibody production, even without there being an antigen. So even there, so that means even without a virus, you would still produce the substance required to create antibodies. And that is the function of an adjunct in a vaccine to increase its efficiency. So at the end of their research, what they found is that the left-handed chiral nanoparticle had a 25.8% higher efficiency than the right-handed version, which is even greater than the normal achiral version. So now that they have done this technology and created this concept, again, to stress, these are not vaccine developers they're researchers so it's more so like for vaccine developers to pick up this concept and then apply it to their research that's really cool so this whole time we've just kind of been using this you know more or less inefficient um component of our vaccines and now now that we know how to kind of edit it it it, we've increased efficiency by like 25 to almost 26 percent that's crazy I know, it's amazing. And these group of researchers, they are Brazilian researchers, and they were trying to develop this technology for an influenza virus strain initially, like years before COVID. Um, and I'm guessing COVID probably, you know, kind of boosted the progress of their research. So there are there are definitely some some benefits to it. So, uh, Tanish, the last thing I want to talk about today uh, it, it's a little bit of a story. So let's let's start at the beginning of the story. Let's start with the dinosaurs. Um, do you know how the dinosaurs went extinct? Giant meteorite hit them. Yeah, there was a giant meteor, meteorite, whatever. A giant piece of something came down and it hit the planet. Um, but did you know that the reason they actually went extinct wasn't because of the impact? It was because basically the impact tossed up a lot of dust and debris. Um, and the dust and debris kind of covered the entire planet and it stopped sunlight from reaching the Earth's surface. So when it ended up happening was there was uh, very little energy reaching the surface, right? If you look at your food chain, 
every, all the energy on the planet that we have, it starts from plants and it starts from sunlight getting to those plants. So if there's very little sunlight, we don't have the energy necessary uh, for life. So a lot of those larger organisms like the dinosaurs uh, went extinct. Some of the smaller ones or the ones who could you know, survive with less energy or lived underwater, um, they survived it. But a lot of the dinosaurs went extinct because of that. Uh, and what we're seeing now is uh, similar things happening occasionally. Um, so have you ever heard of uh, the volcano called Pinatubo? I didn't want to say that wrong. Mount Pinatubo. No, I have not. So it was a huge volcano uh, erupted in 1991 uh, in June. Um, and basically it ejected this cloud of sulfur dioxide, just ash, right? Mm -hmm. It ejected this cloud into the stratosphere. Um, so it's about 20 miles up. And basically it cooled down the planet by like 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit um, oh at, at the biggest. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and we've had similar kind of disturbances that have happened. There was Krakatau in 1883, Tambora in 1815. Um, there was also an eruption in Iceland uh, a lot more recently than that, though I forget the year. I want to say it was 2011. Um, big eruption it actually cooled down uh, North America and parts of Europe uh, by similar amounts. Right. So we were able to bring the temperature down by basically injecting crap into the atmosphere. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. You can think of it as like the inverse of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide traps heat um, that's radiating up from the Earth's surface. The heat can't escape out to space. Um, what this kind of stuff does, so like sulfur dioxide and other kind of, you know, uh, particle pollutants um, in the atmosphere, they'll stop the light from getting in in the first place and heating up the planet. So it's like a cloud, basically. Yeah, it's, it's exactly like a cloud, exactly like a cloud. So one solution that engineers have been looking at um, for climate change is actually doing this artificially, and they call it, you know, geoengineering of the climate. Um, and the plan is essentially to kind of eject a bunch of aerosols uh, into the stratosphere and having them reflect incoming sunlight and sort of, you know, pausing, uh, pausing the warming of the, of the planet, right? Um, by reflecting that sunlight back out. No, I just have a little concern. But didn't you say it was sulfur dioxide? Sulfur dioxide. Yeah, a component of that cloud. So including like a lot of like debris, wouldn't that be bad in a different way? Yeah, so these aerosols that they are, you know, theoretically want to inject into the atmosphere, um, they are... Uh, <laughs> they're not they're not specifically like just volcanic ash and stuff okay. uh, they didn't like you know they didn't go like oh we're gonna exactly recreate volcanic ash for the stuff that was kicked up uh, when the dinosaurs went extinct um they are using you know engineered aerosols that have the purpose the specific purpose of reflecting sunlight oh okay that makes a lot more sense because i was I, for a second i was like wait is that good or bad so, well, and that's the question, right? We don't know if it's good or bad yet. We haven't really tried it. Um, it's been tried a couple times in a couple of really um, isolated locations. Um, but there's a lot of discussion about whether or not this is something that is um, viable. Uh, some researchers think uh, it could have a lot of negative effects. And one of those, um, which has come out in a study this week, uh, is looking at the effects of geoengineering on the transmission of malaria and other mosquito-borne diseases. So what researchers kind of found was that um, if we, you know, use geoengineering to cool the planet down, um, what could actually happen is that mosquitoes will be able to transmit diseases 
more efficiently. Um, so as the planet gets too hot for people, it also gets too hot for uh, the parasites, right? So cooling the planet might save lives um, on the climate change side, but it might also cost lives on the, you know, kind of uh, vector-borne disease side, right? Because mosquitoes will be able to transmit a lot more easily. Yeah, no, I was going to, this reminds me of this another article I read, I'm not going to go into it, but basically they were engineering this type of mosquitoes and like there was talk about releasing it out in California that can be like more, has a more survival rate than mosquitoes that carry malaria, like any of these dengue diseases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, uh, maybe that's the solution we need before yeah. we try geoengineering. Um, and, and the other thing these researchers noticed was just that there were, um, there were a lot of geographical kind of differences. Um, so in different regions, so in their, uh, you know, in their projections and their models, they saw that geoengineering might reduce malaria risk in the Indian subcontinent, um, even compared to right now. But that would be offset by a huge increase in risk in Southeast Asia. Um, so there's a lot of geopolitics that kind of come into play with this as well. And, you know, again, there is obviously a caveat here. This is just one projection. This is one study, but it's a pretty convincing study. And clearly there's some kind of relationship here that needs to be further investigated before we actually seriously consider injecting engineered aerosols into the atmosphere to cool the planet down. Yeah, before we change the planet, we need to take care of those parasites first. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we gotta solve the problems we have before we cause more of them, um, if that's possible at all. All right, so thanks for joining me today, Tanish. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about geoengineering, crows, or any of the other topics we've talked about on this show, visit us on Instagram or TikTok at SciForEveryone and on our website at scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.